0: Welcome to MicroCollege, a podcast exploring innovative, place-based, and humanly scaled responses to the crises in higher education, meaning, and discourse in our time. Everyone knows that colleges and universities are at a breaking point, but what can be done? I'm Jacob Hunt, the director of Thoreau College, a microcollege in Verroca, Wisconsin. Join us each week as we tackle this question head on. Welcome to MicroCollege. This week on the podcast, we're very excited to have as our guest Laura Marcus, who is one of my heroes, one of the real leaders and movers and shakers in this burgeoning microcollege movement. Laura is the co executive director of the Tidelines Institute in Gustavus, Alaska, in the region of Glacier Bay. Um, before that, part of the ancestry of Tidelines Institute, she was the founder of the Arete Project, um, which is a, was a Deep Springs inspired initiative project in higher education. She holds a, a bachelor's degree from Yale and a master's of philosophy from Cambridge and is working on her doctorate from Stanford. Thank you for joining us today, Laura.
1: Thanks, Jacob. It's great to be here.
0: So here on the podcast, uh, we would like to begin with people's biographies. So pr- could you take us back to when you were 18, 19, 20 years old? Where were you? What were you, were you doing? And what about that time influenced your decision to, to dig into this kind of work?
1: Sure, that's a great question. Uh, so I grew up in Indianapolis, Indiana, um, kind of sandwiched in between the city center and the suburbs, and Indianapolis is a very spread out city, For so for folks who are familiar with it, uh, you'll kind of know what I mean. Um, I went to a huge public high school with about 4,000 students and was really lucky to get a great education there. Um, I had some really wonderfully supportive teachers, um, I got to take classes and basically everything that interested me. Um, So I have a lot of really positive memories um, of my own time in high school, Um, but kind of towards my senior year and as I started getting more serious about my college search, that's really around the time that I started thinking seriously about education and specifically about what I wanted out of higher education. Uh, And during that time, um, a couple of my most important influences and and interlocutors on the subject um, were my maternal grandparents, uh, both of whom were educators, um, and both of whom had thought deeply and seriously about Um, education, both conventional and alternative. Uh, And so they have remained really important um, parts of uh, my educational journey and uh, my uh, intellectual community, um, thinking about education um, up until their passings um, within the last few years. And kind of the the big question that I became focused on um, around that time um, really had to do with what seemed to me to be this disconnect between the stated mission and vision, um, both of my high school, but also basically all the colleges that I was applying to, um, and the actual way that the education, educational experiences were structured um, at those institutions. So on the one hand, pretty much all of these schools were talking a really big game about education for service and leadership and citizenship and taking responsibility for a community and for the world and for the future. Um, and yet the actual structure of the education at all of these schools seemed to have nothing to do with that. It was all about cultivation of this very individualistic um vision of educational attainment so uh having the highest gpa having the most extracurricular activities having the best leadership positions and the shiniest resume right that seemed to be the actual goal um and that seemed to have so little to do with the stated goal of preparing people to really take responsibility um for a community And so, yeah, that just kind of generated some real cognitive dissonance in my own head and got me really excited when I stumbled across Deep Springs as part of my college search because finally I felt like I had found an educational institution that was not only doing something pretty radically different, but also really walking the walk in terms of um, aligning educational vision with the structure of the education. So um, you know this well as a Deep Springs alum, um, but to, to be at a school where the work that you are doing both inside and outside the classroom really matters for the people around you and really has consequences for the community. That seemed to me to be a much truer Model for producing the kind of servant leaders that every school talks about. And um, you know, certainly this is jumping ahead a little bit, but certainly I felt like that was that was borne out in the time that I spent at Deep Springs and what I saw uh of students and in their own educational journeys there. So I was really taken with deep springs um and wanted to go there of course it was only open to men at the time so for obvious reasons that did not uh work out for me which i was bummed about but um you know i i ended up going to yale uh and had uh, honestly again a really great educational experience there um especially coming from uh a big public school in Indiana, I felt like I really found intellectual community with people my own age for the first time and found people who were just as passionate about learning and thinking and playing with ideas. Um, And so I was kind of, you know, in total paradise for most of my time there. But kind of again, towards the end of my time at Yale, um, yeah, I just I found myself thinking about deep springs again um and and it was not only having to do with uh again this um cognitive dissonance between the structure of the education the educational vision which was even more pronounced at yale where there is a huge emphasis on um whatever being the best uh you know by that point it was getting the best job or making the most money or getting into the best law school or med school or whatever um so that was still very much the case and then the the other thing that I was really feeling at that time was just that and I remember having a conversation with a friend about this uh just I might as well have been a brain in a vat like no part of my being was really engaged with the educational work except my brain. And my brain was pretty happy at Yale, (laughs) Um, but the rest of me kind of felt like something was lacking. So again, places like Deep Springs and places like I think a lot of micro colleges, um, which offer in many cases a much more holistic um, education that engages the body or the emotional or spiritual life or, or whatever, um, that felt like something that was missing, um, from my own, uh, higher education for sure. And, and continued to be something that I, um, was percolating on as my educational work transitioned from being a student to, um, being an educator
0: yeah that you're a precocious theorist of education clearly <laughs> the very early age thinking about about what is the outcomes and purpose of education and I think that the linkage between service which is so much trumpeted in the deep springs material as you mentioned many other schools as well but clearly there the core mission of Deep Springs and its relationship to the particular activities of being at Deep Springs college, which are the three pillars, right? The, not only the academics, but also the labor and this, and this self-governance, the life of the community there um, that, that does it's um, it is not quite as, as linear as many educational theorists build their theories around, right? The life of the community is a very, very specific community there um, that, I wonder, you know, so to complete the story here or to continue the story, right? You you were not able to, to go to Deep Springs as a student, but that, one of the things I admire about you is that never, that definitely hasn't <laughs> <even> stopped you <laughs> from going to Deep Springs. <laughs> you take it, how did you end up finding yourself at Deep Springs?
1: Right. So I, <laughs> This is like such a such a funny story, and definitely, I think the the lesson behind this for young people is that you should never feel afraid to send a really, I don't know, ridiculously presumptuous email um, to somebody that you're interested in working for or with, because sometimes it might just work out. Who knows? <laughs> um, but uh, kind of towards the end of my senior year. Um, Actually, with this same friend that I had the conversation with about just being a brain in a vat, we we got into a big argument about Plato's Symposium, um, which we were both really into at the time. And, and the big question was, can men and women read that book the same way? Um, and so this conversation ended up going on over a period of like multiple months, and we would kind of come back to it and... Uh, I can't even remember where we landed on the subject if we landed anywhere at all. But Basically, the, the question of Deep Springs and single sex education um, sort of entered into that conversation somewhere. And so for the first time in, you know, quite some time, I started really thinking about Deep Springs again. And the outcome of that was that somehow I decided um at the relatively tender age of 21 that if deep springs was not going to admit women that i was going to found the deep springs that would admit women and i sent a very impetuous email to the then president of deep springs david neidorf informing him of this fact and to my great surprise and delight um he actually responded very positively to that email and very supportively um and i actually (laughs) i reread uh I reread that email not too long ago. And the email immediately following that was me forwarding David's email to this friend of mine with a whole bunch of exclamation points. That was the entire message that I had uh, to to add to that. But uh, David and I started talking, um, that eventually led to my getting to go visit Deep Springs. um, And this was right around the time that Deep Springs uh the the board of trustees had voted to transition the school to co-education so the hope was that that would happen in 2013 so i came away from my visit to deep springs which was in early 2012 with with an offer to come back um as staff that fall to help with the transition to co-education so i eagerly accepted that um and started there in september 2012 um Mostly working on student recruitment. Um, so trying to recruit the first COED class uh to the school, but then also serving, I was on the applications committee, I was on the the transition committee, so you know, figuring out things like advising and sexual harassment policies and how are we gonna do bathrooms now? Mm-hmm. Um and and all that sort of thing. So that's how I I ended up there, um, and that's kind of what I was doing, um, at least for the first year that I was at Deep Springs. But I was really lucky to be able to kind of get to imbibe from the general environment and shadow a class and take horsemanship and participate in the the um, the day to day life of the college and the educational life of the college, um, as well as just sort of you know my own little corner of administrative work. <laughs>
0: So that, I'm wondering about what you, 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 you developed a strong concept of Deep Springs by that point, by the time you actually ended up in the Valley. And I'm wondering how being there, you know, how is that complexified or, or changed by the direct experience of, of, of doing the things you just described?
1: Yeah. So I think, um, I, I had these like very idealistic visions of what Deep Springs, was and I think in some ways those were born out and then some um and one example of this is I I remember my very first apcom meeting that I went to and my previous job I'd I'd been in uh DC working for I would say like relatively dysfunctional tiny environmental nonprofit and That was, yeah, that was not my jam. I didn't really like DC that much. But but coming to Deep Springs and just watching this, like, 20-year-old run this meeting so efficiently, productively, humanely, it just seemed like, how does a 20-year-old know how to run a meeting better than my 40-something boss in DC who's a professional wearing a suit and this guy is, like, maybe 20 in like a beat up car hearts and <laughs> whatever, like coming from his Hegel class. So I was deeply, deeply impressed by, um, what self-governance elicited from students and what that kind of responsibility actually called these very young people up to, um, because they, they fill pretty big shoes and make pretty big decisions and yeah. they do that really well um for people so young um i think i think the thing that surprised me um and this is something that i've continued thinking about uh a lot because now i run programs like this too um and especially coming coming at it from a perspective of someone kind of in like, formal adult leadership. Mm -hmm. This is always sort of weighing on my mind is just kind of the intensity of community life. Um, It's not part of the three pillars, but it is so much the beating heart of Deep Springs for good and for ill, um, and changed so dramatically while I was there. Um, I was really lucky to be there at a time that was I think very functional in terms of the community, both among students and among Staffelty. Um, But I think it was at a moment where that whole community was just kind of transitioning from like out of a state of dysfunction. Um, And it was really remarkable to see how just the individual personality is present so significantly change the experience of living and working there um even over a short period of time um yeah. So that's that's something very much at the forefront of of my mind now um especially at the beginning of our of our admission season uh, at tidelines is uh what it takes to build a really functional um really, generative um and supportive educational community um and and how to find those people because it uh it's not easy um from the standpoint of you know sort of like a written application or, or even an interview uh and i think it's something that deep springs grapples with um all the time as, as i'm sure we all do Thoreau College is a leader in an emergent movement dedicated to the renewal and revitalization of higher education through the creation of new humanly scaled institutions with holistic curricula known as microcolleges. Thoreau College, higher education for the whole human being.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's great. So before we go too much deeper into this, I guess I want to zoom ahead a little bit. You had uh, you had this, you know this, you know, attraction to Deep Springs uh, as a student, as a young person, then you got to have this experience there as a staff person, you know, really kind of ground-truthing some of that, and must have, you know, borne up enough to want to continue this idea of, of, of building something like that uh, in a new place. So there's the Arete Project, which, which ran a series of summer um, programs in California and North Carolina, eventually in Alaska, um, with, you know, primarily people who are in universities somewhere else, um, initially women, and then also a co-ed group in Alaska. That, that got that all right? Yeah. <laughs> Great. So that's a fascinating story, and, and I've enjoyed following it. I, I wanted to, to, to jump a little bit to where you are now, and if you could describe the Tidelines Institute. Um, yeah, start with with where it is, and then, and then what, what is the nature of the programs that you're running there?
1: Absolutely. So, uh, Tidelines Institute is uh, an educational nonprofit um, based here along the Icy Strait Corridor uh, in Southeast Alaska. So, this is the northernmost entrance to Alaska's Inside Passage, which I think a lot of folks are familiar with. Um, we operate out of two campuses, one here in my new hometown of Gustavus, Alaska, which is the gateway community to Glacier Bay National Park. Um, It's a town of roughly 500 people. Um, And then we have a second campus out at the Indian Islands, uh, which is a remote archipelago uh, about 25 miles west of here. Um, So the mission of Tidelines is education for citizenship, stewardship, and leadership. So out of these two campuses, we are running uh, courses of variable lengths that serve both local students and students from around the country. Um, probably the, the flagship program that we offer, and, and this is the one that I imagine we'll talk most about here today, is our gap year, which is called the Glacier Bay Year Program. Um, it's a six month program for students kind of in and around college age, so ranging from about 18 to 23. Um, and structured around those same three Deep Springs pillars of education, labor and self-governance. Um, so all of our students who come to this program are partaking in all of those. And, and I think one major distinction between uh, the gap year program and and Deep Springs is that we have a fairly substantial place based focus. So. Um, it's certainly not true of all of our courses, but many of our courses are trying to acquaint students, um, in a really, uh, both, both deep and broad way with Southeast Alaska, um, and, and with the kind of Pacific Northwest generally. So that includes courses on, you know, local field ecology, clinkit culture and history, um, just general kind of, um, ethical, political, and historical uh, approaches to this place, all of that has factored into various courses um, that we've taught here at Tidelines. And then, um, you know, there are some others as well that uh, really are trying to create intellectual space um, where students can engage with questions that they're encountering elsewhere in their day-to-day experience, whether that's in self-governance or labor or, or elsewhere. Um, so it's, th- this program has sort of been my baby and the one that I've been most excited to create and to run for years, um, because I have, I've just been so taken by this educational model, but have also seen how much it requires in terms of time especially for self-governance in order to get students to a point of familiarity with the place and the program and the people that they can actually take responsibility for it um, mm-hmm. so this was much harder with a one or a two month program such as i was um, running under the auspices of arte um just because you know people need to get oriented before they can actually do anything. And it takes long enough to do that, that, okay, you get to the end of a month or two months and you feel like, okay, we're just getting to the point where we can like make some decisions. And then everybody goes home and nobody sees each other ever again. The end. Right.
0: Um, All of us in this, in this space, I think, um, especially with influence from Deep Springs, you've got this example of a program that has two years, right? You have people who are, they're not only there one year, they're there two years. And so you have cultural memory, you have, Strong abilities for students to teach each other, you know, to to share those, to 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 make mistakes, and then have another chance to try it again the following year. So I think this is this is a fundamental design problem that 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 we're wrestling with here for sure.
1: Totally, yep. And and we're kind of mulling over the same question, and you know, for a long time, the goal was to actually have a two year program, a la Deep Springs, and and I know, right? That's the direction the Outer Coast is going. Um, and then we were talking about okay, can we have like a year-long program? But you have a you know a cohort that starts in January and a cohort that starts in July. So there's always sort of you know by the time one group shows up, there's a group that's already been there for six months who can show them the rope for like the subsequent six months. And so these are all things that are kind of in the hopper right now in terms of program design. Um, this is like neither here nor there, but like we have to get our infrastructure to the point that it can support that before we could make that move. And and then there's the bigger question of whether that will actually work and we can find the students to fill those positions. Um, but yeah, that uh, it's not as as rich an educational experience when it's wholly iterative which is the only kind of program that we've run just because when you have those overlapping cohorts it creates so much opportunity for peer leadership and learning um and it's yeah that was the amazing thing about deep springs is that so much of that responsibility was devolved from staff members to students and the students just did it themselves second years would teach first years and um and staff weren't involved or if they were it was sort of on the periphery and um man that's like such a great learning experience for students and and one that I think is hard to recreate unless you can give it that kind of time and unless you can get the students to commit that kind of time
0: yeah so where are your students coming from again the 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 size of the cohorts are, are how many
1: so right now it's a, it's a super small program. The, the gap year is only six students. Um, we hope to expand that to 12 to 15, starting in 2024. We're um, completing a, a new educational building in 2023, which will allow us to <laughs> have a little bit more breathing room on campus right now. We're in pretty close quarters. Um, but uh, but yeah, once that happens, I think we'll, we'll up our numbers a little bit. And students come from all over the country um, because it is a six month program. We can't admit international students right now unless they're coming in with their own visas that will allow them to be around for six months. We're not kind of at the point where we can sponsor those yet. But yeah, this year, you know, we had a student from New Jersey, a student from Michigan, a student from Kentucky, a couple students from California and a student from New York. Um, So yeah, kind of a pretty, pretty even geographic spread. Um, and then alongside the gap year, we also run um, a series of short courses um, that is those more serve students from particular partner schools that we work with around the country, um, and then students who are based uh, in Alaska and kind of around the Pacific Northwest. Mm-hmm.
0: And the age profile of your of the of the the year students are, are are Co- college. age like 18,
1: eighteen to twenty-three. So we take students who are anywhere between right out of high school all the way up to right out of college.
0: Okay, and this is a program that begins in early summer, right?
1: Just, yeah, it does. Usually, right after.
0: You do, like, why that is, but can you just say explicitly, like, why would you have this? It goes from from late May to November. Is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And basically, the the reason for that is so that students are here during the bulk of peak season in Alaska um the very first gap year we ran started in January and went to August and that was pretty intense there was snow a lot of snow on the ground for the first four months that students were in Alaska and you know when they showed up we were getting like four or five hours of daylight and um yeah it was not <laughs> it was best way to start a program um so even though it's a little bit challenging vis-a-vis graduation schedules and all that we um did bump um the start of the gap year to may and end in november so that students are around for you know all of the summer hubbub which allows us to you know do field trips because the ferry is running reliably and go up in glacier bay and just like generally be outside um, because yeah, fall and winter can be kind of intense. Actually winter and early spring are probably the most intense. Um, students are, are around for the fall season and fall is my favorite time in Southeast Alaska. It's so rich, it's so abundant, the salmon are running, um, the berries are on the bushes, we're harvesting the garden uh, and, and our first gap year students missed all of that because they were gone um, by mid-August. And so um, I think it's I think it's a much better schedule um, and allows students to sink in much deeper um, to to have them made in November, even though it doesn't quite align with the academic calendar.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So you, you started to say a few of those things, but so the, the labor pillar there is, you know, really shaped by the place in so many ways. Can you say a bit more about the specific things that, that the, the students are doing during that, in that kind of pillar of the, of the program?
1: Yeah, for sure. So, so both of our campuses are, are more or less working homesteads. Um, so, students are divided up uh, right now into three uh, different labor teams. So there is a labor team that's kind of farm and garden. So they are working on the farm and garden with our garden educator and, you know, growing the bulk of the produce that we eat over the course of the summer, um, caring for our flock of ducks and chickens. Um, We're always talking about whether or not we're going to start another small animal operation but I think that's probably a couple years down the line um there are students on our construction and maintenance team so generally they do kind of one big uh construction project a year so this year it was a bike and gear shed the year before that it was our kind of chicken coop and garden shed um I don't actually think we've pulled the trigger yet on exactly what it will be for 2023 but something kind of in that line so students can learn kind of basic construction and framing skills. Um, And then the rest of the time, you know, they're doing minor motor maintenance or splitting firewood or kind of the other work that it takes to to keep the place running. Um, And then we also have students on kitchen team who are both preparing a couple of meals every day and then doing other kitchen projects like making sourdough and fermenting kombucha and, you know, transforming berries into jam and salmon into smoked salmon and all that good stuff.
0: Yeah. Amazing. Amazing. Only some some things you can only do in a few places in the world. So, yeah. Um, great. So I think um, something I wanted to take the, a chance to bounce off of you, Laura, is something I've been working on, you know, Zwieb. Um, We've been you know, participating for a number of years in this this loose movement, which is, I think, taking some steps towards formalization or just a wider um, like awareness. Um, whether we call them microcolleges or, I don't know, how what what how would you describe how do you describe what you're doing to to other people? Is there a word that you use?
1: <laughs> this has been like the question because <laughs> back when we were running like one and two month programs um, through Arate everybody would call us a summer camp. And I was like, we're not a summer camp. (laughs) Um, So that was a sort of constant frustration. I think one of the sort of puzzles for us has been figuring out where we fit into the higher ed landscape and how we articulate exactly what it is that we're doing in a way that people will understand. Um, Because I think that, you know, running the summer programs through Arte was kind of, A puzzle for students and parents and everyone else um, as much as uh, as much has been um, for uh, for us. So I think that we've kind of landed on the gap year nomenclature just because it's something that is very understandable and current right now. Um, Ever since I can't remember which one of Obama's daughters took a gap year but one of them did and then ever since that everyone has been like into gap years which i think is actually a really good idea i think most people kind of need a break between high school and college or somewhere in that space um i kind of wish i had taken one uh but we've kind of landed on that just um in in large part because it more or less accurately describes what we do and it's comprehensible to the students that we're trying to recruit into it um I think the micro college nomenclature is one that I'm kind of seeing increasingly catching on, which is exciting. Um, in large part because I feel like there's so much need for innovation and experimentation in the higher ed space, and you know, in some ways, the American higher ed system is set up really well for that, and in some ways, it is really not. And like can, there are so many barriers to entry for new higher ed initiatives so yeah i'm i'm stoked to see all of that taking off and i think of lines and the glacier bay year very much as sort of like a fellow traveler in that um i think the i think that there are a lot of kind of blurred lines between what is a gap year and what is a a micro college um and that might, you know, get more sort of solidified as things go on, and microcolleges become places that sort of carry their own accreditation or whatever. Um, but I kind of hope not because I like sort of, I don't know, <laughs> having the <to> loose boundaries.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think I, I think something I, I appreciate about you and your story is is you know your willingness to 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 start without knowing the end the end point right to, to you know try one schedule one length of time one group of students one place right there's a sense there that that there's something that that needs to happen something an opportunity a need that that that's the world is is showing us and and some combination of these pieces you know will is necessary and I think what's exciting for me is the idea of, of a bunch of places combining those pieces in different ways right and because then Absolutely. you really generally have a have a field of opportunities, two year programs, summer programs, semester programs, different geography, different kind of mixtures of 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 the different pillars. So um I guess as I'm I'm you know, working, thinking about what we're doing here and and as I identify, for example, who to talk to on this podcast, um there's there's four four kind of um characteristics of programs that, that I'm loosely grouping in this this movement one we've talked about several of them the first is humanly scaled right These obviously are micro they're small um and you know there's there's boundaries to that but you know six to a hundred something like that right yeah. there, there's a range um there is i think the play space aspect is is very important um so it is in a specific place. And that I would include Deep Springs in that, right? Mm-hmm. It, is, it is the voice of the desert, right? It's, its identity is shaped by its place in a way. Um, and that's, of course, in contrast to other trends in education, which are just the opposite of place-based. They're remote, they're mm-hmm. generic, there are you know, they're, they're other kind of ways that information is being you know, exchanged and credentials are being done that have nothing to do with place, right? So place-based, humanly scaled, place-based, a holistic curriculum right we could say the three pillars we've talked about five pillars here but in any way a, a, an education that's not just a brain in a jar right as you're yeah. saying right something that engages the body it also en- engages the social life you know uh self-governance a wider conception of communities whether that's festivals or celebrations or just social artistry different forms but a holistic conception of education and then the fourth and the one that i really have yet to i think name in my own mind is but the working title is is meaning centered or meaning based Mm -hmm. there's something um there's something that goes beyond the explicit content of the curriculum whether that's skills or academics and is acknowledging a uh you know purpose based meaning based it could be spiritual it could be you know it could be something that is is sort of about vocation, but it's it's something it's a deeper level to education. I wonder if you have any thought about that in your own programs or how you think about that aspect.
1: Yeah, that's that's a great question, and um, I think that it in so many ways it's it's kind of the most nebulous one, and therefore the most exciting, and <laughs> therefore the one that everybody kind of like wants you to define, but. <laughs> I think it's actually for the best that at least this this is the the tack that I've taken is that, okay, so all the time we have students who ask about the mission and are like, okay, what do you mean by citizenship, stewardship, and leadership? What do you mean by service? Like, please define that for me and. I have been really reluctant to ever define any of those terms for students because I feel like that is exactly the conversation that they need to be having amongst themselves. And so I try to, to the extent possible, try to like instigate that and make them think about it. Um, and uh, a lot of that I think happens informally. Like we don't have a part of our curriculum that is set aside for students to um, sit down and like, talk about that. Um, Although, you know, there are times, uh, you know, within our curriculum, so, so we're hoping this, um, this next year to have uh, a course about um, governing the community and the self. So, right, these can sort of be spaces that like, get into those questions. Um, But I think it's really important that that students are engaging with and wrestling with those questions themselves, and that it's not just coming down as some sort of like didactic solution um from the administration. Deep Springs was really good at this, too. um and and I think again, sort of informally and tacitly, and therefore really effectively, right? i I heard so many conversations among students there about what it meant to live a life of service, including one student who I was there who like absolutely took the tack. My, service to humanity is gonna be to make a crap ton of money and donate it in the most effective way possible. And he is well on that route. And (laughs) there were (laughs) whatever, everybody else would like sort of gang up on him and like have big arguments about that particular philosophy of service, but right, it's great at provoking debate. Um, And Uh, that's uh, the sort of thing I I love to see um, and, and encourage among students, if that answers your question.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think that, that the willingness to hold open a space, right, to pose a question and not answer it, right, is, I mean, it's something that is actually inherent to the pedagogical model of the Waldorf schools, which we are influencing us here. The teacher will pose a lot of questions and not answering them, and like overnight or ever, like, and that that really is, it's a lot of generative space. And I think Deep Springs definitely does that as well. So this question of meaning, the the, the trick is to keep the space open for it and not answer it. Right. There's plenty of sectarian schools that say, yeah, this is the the creed. This is what, this is what meaning is. And there's plenty of places that ignore the question. I think as you're pointing to like, okay, what's, what's the connection between what we're doing here in the life of service or, or, you know, just not answering, not addressing the question. The trick is to hold open the open space. Right.
1: Yeah. Yeah, precisely.
0: Do you see, uh, is there a connection between, um, you know, the labor or the, or the, the kind of the, the context of this deep engagement with, with the, the place and the kind of the, the physical that you've got students engaged with there and this dynamic?
1: Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, so yeah, you're asking about the connection between labor and, and place. Or labor and, and,
0: and uh, labor and place with this this kind of this question of meaning.
1: Oh, oh, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, I think, um, okay, so relationship between labor and meaning, I think that labor is the place that students most obviously are taking responsibility for the the community around them. Um, I think certainly this happens in self-governance and academics too, but it's so palpable in labor because literally you are cooking the food that... Your fellow students are eating, you are like, whatever, fixing the fence that fell down so the moose don't get into the garden. Uh, If you don't, you know, close the chickens in at night, we'll have whatever weasels or coyotes get in and eat them. So you're like really responsible to other living creatures and there are real consequences and real stakes for the work that you're doing. Um, and I think that's often one of the most meaningful parts of the program for students is just feeling like you are being of service to the people around you. Um, and, and then that can be really fulfilling. Um, likewise, I think that you know many of our students are coming from educational backgrounds where they have not really ever been asked to do anything with their hands or like, exist and manipulate the physical world in any kind of meaningful way um so you know for students to learn how to use a driver fix a toilet uh cook cook a meal uh boil an egg right like any of these things um i think is is really meaningful as well just because it's taking you into a plane of existence within an engagement with the world in a way that is I think increasingly closed off to a lot of people who live in urban environments and just sort of like live a modern lifestyle where you know you just call the plumber if your toilet's broken um and then in terms of of relationship to place um I think that the meaning element is there too just because you know one of the things we heard from so many students this year is wow like being so engaged with place here makes me realize how disengaged I am from yeah. place at home. And like, I love my home. I grew up there, you know, we had a student this year who was like really committed to living in Appalachia and like loved it there. That was her home. She wants to like make, make it better in all of these different ways. But she was like, I cannot even identify like two dozen plant species in Appalachia I now know so many in Southeast Alaska. I really need to like make an effort to learn this when I go home so that I actually can learn my place. Um, and I think that's super meaningful for students too.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That sense of being placeless is very closely connected to being, to to be meaningless or to, to have yeah. a lack of having, having an absence, a little sense of void. Yeah. Can you talk a bit more about, you know, one aspect of being place-based at least for us here is an engagement, not only with the, the land and the wild animals and the plants, but also with the human communities. Can you talk about totally. how that works where you are?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, that happens kind of in two primary ways. So we're um, a, a little bit about local history and geography. So we are here in Lingit-Ani, which is the ancestral homelands of the Klinkit people. Um, we're specifically on the ancestral homelands of the Huna Klinkit. Um, which is um, one uh, like geographic community within the broader Clinkett nation. Um, and that encompasses both of our campuses, both here in Gustavus and then out uh, on the Indian Islands. Um, there was enduring Tlingit presence here in the area around Gustavus um, until about 1750 when a major little ice age glacier um, kind of advanced extremely quickly and pushed that community out of the area because literally everything became covered with ice. Um, and so they dispersed and and settled um, in what is now the town of Huna, uh, which is across icy strait from us, so across this kind of uh, thin body of water that that separates us. Um, and then when the glacier receded in the early 20th century, this area quickly became colonized um, by by white settlers um, and remains a pretty white uh, community, which is one of the challenges um, for Tidelines in that we have a pretty diverse student community and we're bringing them up to a pretty white, pretty rural um, Alaskan town, which uh, it can be a, a pretty daunting thing um, mm. to ask of students. So we, we can talk more about that in a bit. Um, we certainly have students engaged in a variety of ways in the Gustavus community, especially now that COVID is kind of kind of letting up, although continued to be a little bit of an issue this summer. But um, there is just so much going on here. There's a really vibrant artistic community in town, scientific community in town, so many people with skills uh just all over the map from boat building to you know fruit tree husbandry to uh you know we have a a guy who's leading a workshop tonight um converting an uh a diesel vehicle to an electric vehicle and so like we try to make all of that um available to students to the extent that there are community members who are eager to teach and share what they know and students who are eager to learn it. So I think we were pretty successful this year and looking forward to continuing that going forward. Um, I think that uh, one of the most meaningful experiences for students and also one of the most kind of important, um, important projects that Tidelines has been working on both within and without the gap year uh, over the last several years has been building our relationships with the Huna Clinkit community. Um, we are a place-based organization. This is Clinkit homeland. Um, we are really grateful to get to be the stewards of these little places um, that exist on their homeland. Uh, and so I think we have a, a significant obligation um, to make sure that our programs are serving those communities Two, um, so you know we are now running programs, um, mostly short courses, uh, in partnership with Huna Indian Association, which is the tribal government um, in Huna. Um, we had a super, like, beautiful um, totem pole dedication ceremony that has been a multi-year project between Tide Lines and the tribe. Um, that happened this September. And we took our gap year students to HUNA um, for a week long field trip for the first time this summer, Um, all of which were yeah, just really amazing experiences, except that I got COVID during the field trip. That was not ideal, Um, but but that was just such an amazing way to acquaint students with the thousands of years of human history um, in this place um, and to acquaint them with, yeah, the continuing vibrancy of that culture. I think, you know, that was one of the things that really impressed me uh, and surprised me when I first moved up to Alaska is, you know, I had lived all over. I, I lived all over the country. I've lived in, in every time zone now. Um, <laughs> and I had never lived anywhere with a really vibrant native presence because you know on the when i was living back east most of those indigenous peoples were you know sent on the the trail of tears to oklahoma or elsewhere and then um when i was living in the west i think most indigenous folks were segregated onto reservations and it's a totally different history totally different story in alaska but Alaska Native culture is like front and central, and a part of kind of everybody's day-to-day experience just of living here, and that was totally novel for me when I first came here, and I think totally novel for students too.
0: Yeah, it sounds like it's a really unique kind of mixture of, of cultures there in, in, a, in a really special place. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, it is.
0: <laughs> um, yeah, so we are, we're we're kind of heading up towards the top of the hour here, and um, yeah, I guess I'm wondering um, yeah, just, you're a person I want to ask the, the big questions to. Like where, you know, where does this this movement go? Like what 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 what, what would be your hopes be for for uh, if you were looking out 20 years into the future? What what is what is a, a young person, you know, finishing up with high school, what what would they have to choose from or what what does the landscape look like if you had your say?
1: Yeah, this is a big question and um I actually I'm I'm terrible at at answering questions like if I could just like design everything control everything um I think in large part because I am a really pragmatic person and I actually have a hard time I don't know spending mental energy on things like I don't think can be done. Um so I think so, so so I guess I'll kind of start from the like pragmatic side of things and go from there. I think that the big factor is going to be what happens in the higher education space generally. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is gonna determine a lot of where the micro college movement can go and a lot of what students feel they can do. Um, so the other kind of important uh, person in my family with whom I talk about education quite a bit Is my dad who was a higher ed strategic planner for 30 years Hmm. and uh his read on the situation is that uh higher ed in the us is a bubble that is going to burst any second just like the housing bubble did in 2008 um because what students now demand from colleges is an incredible amount What colleges charge is an incredible amount. The debt that students are burdened with is an incredible amount. And all of that is just unsustainable and something has got to give at some point. Um, So, you know, it's a really, I think it's a, a really live question whether the next 20 years are going to be an amazing time for educational innovation. And there are signs that it is, right? With all of these micro colleges starting to crop up and people really pushing back um, against the educational mainstream. I think the the incidence of folks taking gap years is a a good indication that people are looking for different things educationally. Um, On the other hand, there are some worrying signs in that direction too. I mean, we're, we've lost a few pretty well established alternative colleges in the last few years. Green Mountain college, Hampshire college, Shimer college, um, Sweetbriar. I actually can't remember how the Sweetbriar story ended. Marlboro college. I'm sorry.
0: Marlboro. Marlboro.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I knew I was forgetting one. So it's like, if all of these kind of better established institutions are not able to make it right now, what is going to happen with micro colleges? Will, will they be able to sustain themselves and thrive and grow? Um, And I think the, I think the jury's a a little bit out on that. I think, um, yeah, I think a lot depends on what happens kind of generally with the economy. Um, and, and I think to to what extent micro colleges can make themselves uh, accessible and affordable and offer a value proposition that students are willing to swallow um that yeah. is like such a sort of like non-inspiring <laughs> answer but that is that is like the big question that I'm thinking about um kind of long term in higher ed. <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's an exciting and, and and dynamic time, right? You could say it's as Silicon Valley, people like to say a lot of disruption going on. Um, yes. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, I mean, my sense is that there are, um, yeah, there's certainly challenges. There are also real opportunities. I mean, in the 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 those the established four year institutions that you mentioned, you know, they they were tied to a particular model that was very expensive, right? And that's ri- that's not just them, but all, but many many institutions of higher learning are you know are that's part, of the, part of the part of the part of the structure that that uh, change needs to come to. And um, so smaller institutions, like more sm- flexible institutions, different lengths of peer time like that that seems to be part of the part of the mix, at least in in my my sense. Totally. Yeah, maybe like so that that that's like yeah you're you're a pragmatic thinker and I really can identify with that too um so I I, I think it is it's a good challenge though to think about where um what is what is a, a, a really healthful landscape look like and this is where I have found the 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 uh, the Scandinavian folk high school story so influential and important because um yeah I think there is a model of 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 a model of um, sort of non-competitive higher education, place-based, you know, all these things we've been talking about that had a real historical, concrete impact on a particular set of societies. Um, so maybe like as we as we come to the end here, I think you know, you, you your stewardship, citizenship, you know, these are part of your your outcomes there. How do you see you know, your 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 students, students who go through your programs? How are they? Uh, how would you hope that they act in the world when they leave? Gustavus.
1: Yeah, that that's a really good question to end on. Um I I I take a really kind of long view of education. In fact, so my my husband is a co-director of Tidelines Institute and we we talk about this all the time because he is um he's a a climate scientist and activist and really focused kind of like on okay, we need to be producing climate leaders like now. And so that is a super big focus of all of the short courses, um, which is kind of his wheelhouse, whereas I spend more time with the gap year. Um, so, you know, I think there's, I think that there are models of education that very appropriately are focused in a very concrete way on getting students from point A to point B. Like, you know, X, Y, and Z about the climate now. And by the time you come out of this course, you will know begins, you will be able to act in the following ways. And the hope is that you will. Um, my approach is like, is much more focused on the long-term and therefore much more nebulous. Um,
0: and, and
1: it makes it challenging when people are like, please measure your outcomes right. on <laughs> the scale of one to 10. And I'm like, well, okay, <laughs> I guess we'll try to do that. Um, but uh, but I, I would be happy and have been happy to see our students take on leadership positions and take careers in a super wide variety of fields. Um, you know, we do have an alum now who is uh, in the leadership of the Sunrise Movement. Um, we have an alum who is an officer in the Marine Corps. Uh, we have an alum um, who uh you know just got a full ride to oxford to study literature um we have an alum who is like working on um like methane emission capture technology and like um actually I, that is one of the short course alumni i shouldn't i should not claim her <laughs> <as a> Thinking <captain. laughs> generally about tidelines alums um <laughs> but uh but, you know, I think the the big approach of our educational model and one of the things that I feel really deeply about liberal education in general is that it needs to liberate students from the tyranny of their own preconceptions and to liberate students from... The the right the prison of the status quo right like assuming that the way things are is just like the way things are and will be and should be, um, we have no idea what problems we are going to be facing in twenty years or fifty years or maybe we have some idea, um, and to the extent that we do, those problems are really big, um, mm-hmm. and we are going to need students who can think really creatively and empathetically. Um, in a whole variety of different trajectories. So that's, I think, the the educational goal that we are trying to, to lead our students towards is just to have that depth, clarity, creativity, and empathy of thought that they can apply to whatever the pressing problem seems to them to be. Um, and how we measure that on a scale of one to 10, I don't know. But um, I hope that you know we'll get to hear those stories coming out of alums as they grow up and kind of take their place in the world. Um, and I, I would say that the stories that we have been hearing thus far have been really exciting and encouraging. So I hope that continues to be the case.
0: Yeah, I think it's, it, I don't know if we'll ever know how to measure it, but I think, you know, we, we'll we know how it looks. Um, Because I think what I would just observe is that you are modeling that really well, right? The idea of like seeing a big problem, having some sense of the, the outlines of it and sticking with it. Continuously for a long period of time, flexibly, resiliently, you know, creatively. Um, so again, I really appreciate you you taking some time to talk to us today. Um, you're, you're, I really admire your work and your tenacity. And um, maybe, yeah, can you just say your the program is, runs from early summer to to late autumn. Um, if people are interested in in joining the year, what's the application like, and when when do they need to, to be in touch with you?
1: Sure. So all of the application information is available on our website at tidelinesinstitute.org. The application deadline is uh, the end of the calendar year. If you want to find out early and otherwise uh, it's February 1st. Um, It is a pretty straightforward written application, demographic section, what you major in, where you go to school, um, and then two essays um, in a creative or kind of additional fund supplement, Um, and then we'll do interviews probably starting in about a month or six weeks uh, for students who apply by the early deadline, and then a little bit later for students who apply by the February 1st deadline. Um, We ask for references, and that's it. Um, We also offer 100% uh, financial aid um, based on need, so yeah, hope that uh, finances will not be a barrier for any student who wants to apply.
0: Awesome. Amazing. Yeah. So this is, uh, this is we're recording this in, in mid December 2022. And um, probably this will be our, our first podcast uh, posted at the very beginning of 2023. So that February 1st deadline is the one for people to look for. And I really can't uh, imagine a better person to start the year talking to here. So thank you, Laura.
1: Thanks, Jacob. It's great to see you.
0: All right.